a British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Hello and welcome to the British TV podcast, show number 51. I'm Ryan in Seattle. I'm Chrissy in Seattle. How you doing, Chrissy? I'm good. Anything interesting happened to you last week? Yeah, it's been kind of fun to watch. One of my Eddie Izzard clips, a 12-year-old clip recorded by JT back in uh, 19, August of 1998, went viral as a result of featuring Republican nominee from Delaware, Christine O'Donnell, back when she was still in her 20s. and Appearing on Politically Incorrect. Yes, it was one of her many appearances there, but as Bill Maher said... Later that week, I'm the only one that has them except for one person who posted them this week. And I'm thinking, that's me. I was the one. And I actually posted it a whole year ago. And people have been slowly bumping up the view count, but it went crazy. What is it up to now? Well, there's a part one and two. And together, I think they're, if you add it together, it's hovering up around 275, that 100,000. <laughs> 275,000. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of views. Yeah, so, you were on uh, ABC News linking yeah, to it. New York Times. I made the gray lady finally. And the Huffington Post? Puff, that's where most of the views have come from. A good 40% link through there. It's huge. I did a search in Google this afternoon of all the pages that have referenced Christine O'Donnell and Eddie Izzard because um, a lot of people have transcribed a question, a specific question he asked her. And it's, uh, it was 40 thousand hits of different pages and blogs and newspapers i mean it's made the india papers today it's crazy so thank you jt for recording that that was the first thing she ever sent me and i had gotten his second appearance only four weeks later that she'd missed on politically incorrect and so when we met we sent each other a, a tape of this and 12 years later she and i are still very good friends in fact we ended up being tra traveling companions for a while because both of us, our ideal vacation was to go to London and go to the clubs and watch stand-up every night. And now she's married, and I don't know, for some reason she'd rather go on vacation with her husband than me, but that's fine. I still talk to her all the time, went SAR last year, so. All because of Eddie Izzard's website. That's where we met on his forum. Yeah, well, that was pretty remarkable that everybody was hitting on that. I, I would have thought that ABC actually had the tapes, but I guess Bill Maher, must, his production company, must have had them because he claims he has them now, and he's going to yeah, roll you know, them out on his HBO series now. I've been trying to track down a TFI Friday tape, and I wrote Chris Evans' production company now and heard back that they don't own those tapes. And he sent me somewhere else, and the fellow I talked to, and I haven't gotten a peep out of them, so I'm just hoping someday it'll show up. Well, we'll put a link in our show notes to your YouTube video for the yeah. few people who haven't seen it already, but uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty amazing. It is, and MSNBC and a number of places have taken a just a little soundbite from my clip and used it, and that's been reposted with somebody talking about it and then showing a clip of it. And then some girl who, I guess, wanted some view count completely reposted it just she didn't do anything with it she didn't subtitle it or add commentary she just downloaded it and reposted it on her website so uh hmm. that's pretty lame but whatever i don't own it i think in that clip kudos to eddie izzard for kind of putting this young woman on the spot there and 
particularly his Hitler came to your house and asked if there were any Nazis there, would you mm. tell him the truth? Or any Jews, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Right. It's it's funny how that it's getting paraphrased and paraphrased. It's like Chinese whispers of what they're now saying the conversation was and what the actual transcript is. Eddie says, what if you've got Anne Frank in your attic? And what he act and he didn't say that. He meant he said, What if you're hiding Jews? And so, you know, it's very funny just watching it, it slip away. I've never been really a star or so I've never really tried to, you know, get an autograph from Eddie or anything, although I always go once whenever he's in town. But I did write his production company in case they ever do make another documentary and want some good copies of these old appearances because I've got a lot of them. I don't really bother that much recording them anymore because so many other people do and post them, but I've got the early stuff. Cool. I've got his first five or six appearances on Letterman posted there. The other exciting thing, too, is that, and this is interesting as well, I've gotten a lot of subscribers to that site this week. I think I was around, I was hovering in the mid 300s, having had the, it up for just over a year, and now I hit 500 today, so that's a lot. That's about 150 new subscribers in a week, and I've noticed that a lot of the other clips are going up in view count too, but only the clips on American TV. And I personally think my English Eddie clips are much more interesting than most of the American clips, hmm. because here it's just... So tell us about your clothes, blah, blah, blah. I have total clothing rights. I'm a male lesbian, you know, over and over again. He's finally getting away from that now that more people know who he is. Yeah. But you get some of the Parkinson's where that's just accepted and he talks about other things. It's much more interesting. But people are watching the old American clips, mostly the new subscribers. Cool. Oh, I would just like to mention, we should post my absolute favorite clip because I've got over almost 150 on this website. And it's some little films he did in the mid-90s with Antoine Decon. The two of them did some little films and they were shown in kind of, I think, a junior high, high school level throughout the country trying to get kids interested in learning other languages. And it's just hysterical where... Antoine's a waiter and Eddie's an Englishman not quite sure what he's ordering for lunch and I've got a whole bunch of those up and they're my probably my favorite clip of all so we should link to that too some one of these days we'll put it on the show notes yep so amongst all this notoriety did you get a chance to watch any tv I did I watched my homework assignment okay we'll talk about that later anything else anything new no not really I've been it's a pledge now so I've been working more than usual Ah. but I'm I'm done for a while now so I'll have more time Meanwhile, this week's show, we have reviews, news, what's on British TV this week, shows running in the United States, DVD releases, a feature on Top Gear, and another quiz from Michael. Hey, Michael. Reviews. The Road to Coronation Street. I must confess that even though it's available on cable from Canada, I've never watched an episode of the long-running soap Coronation Street. Nevertheless, I was fascinated by this BBC4 drama that brought to life the world of Granada television in Manchester in 1960. Poor Tony Warren is a failed actor who switches to scriptwriting and quickly impresses his boss, Harry Elton, a Canadian who has been brought in to help popularize commercial television. So you want to write about something real? Yes, about something I know. What do you know? Theatre. I can write about that. No, it's the kiss of death. What else? Well, 
I know about out there. I know about Manchester. Can you write about that? Of course I can. I'd write about a street. A real street out there. A back street terrace and all the people who live in it. How long will it take? Is tomorrow fast enough? Are you serious? Well, I've already written it in a way. You have a script? Well, I had a script. Tried to sell it to the BBC, never even got a proper reply, so I ripped it up. Pity. I could write it again. I could make it better. It is a strong idea. Strong enough to take Britain by storm. That's what they're looking for. It will be on your desk in 24 hours. Tony writes his pilot script called Florizel Street. Harry thinks it's just the kind of show Granada should be making, a series with a distinctive northern voice, even though his superiors don't think Britain is ready to hear regional accents on television. A pilot is commissioned and Tony fights to cast authentic northern actors and not ones from London putting on an accent. It's nearly shelved, but Harry arranges a company-wide test screening of the pilot and the employees, many of whom come from the backgrounds depicted in the show, are riveted. A last-minute title change to Coronation Street, and the series is launched by Granada. Within six months, it's the most popular program in Britain, and of course it's still running 50 years later. There are interesting touches in the road to Coronation Street, such as every office at Granada is only allowed a framed photo of P.T. Barnum to remind the employees they are making the greatest shows on earth. Tony Warren, who is still alive and consults on Coronation Street and this drama, was obviously homosexual, but the few people who take any notice, a casting secretary and one of the actresses, don't seem bothered in the least. Maybe this is a concession to modern audiences that the way Tony's portrayed, we're supposed to know he's gay, but to everyone else in 1960, he was just considered a bit camp, like Kenneth Williams. The Road to Coronation Street, like many making-of dramas, shows that truly original, groundbreaking programs are typically the work of a visionary who never gives up or compromises in his quest to overcome conventional thinking. What was the, when was the Queen's coronation? I know it was circa 1960-ish. No, it was 53. Oh, okay. And in fact, we have a news item about that coming up. I like coronation chicken. Do you? I don't know what that is. What is it? Well, it was invented for the coronation, but it's um, chicken salad, and it has uh, mayonnaise and mango chutney, and I always throw in some slivered almonds, little green onions maybe, and a little extra curry powder, and it's quite a delicious chicken salad. So, That's coronation salad, huh? Yep, that's coronation salad. I even have Préamange's recipe for it, which they published on the wrapper of their coronation chicken salad just to prove how fussy theirs is. Mm -hmm. Like you would never want to duplicate it at home. So I, I can send that to you because <laughs> JT saved the wrapper last time she was in London and sent it to me. I've got it all typed up. <laughs> That's okay. The Rob Bryden Show. The Welsh actor, comedian, and presenter gets his own eponymous series, a chat and variety series featuring various guest celebrities. The very first guest is David Williams from Little Britain, and he and Bryden end up talking a lot about the first time they worked together, which was the TV movie Cruise of the Gods. Which we're contractually obligated to mention at least once a month. Yeah, it seems amazing how often it seems to we seem to come back to that. If the name British TV podcast hadn't already been taken, I think we could have called ours Children of Castor because of all the links to Cruise of the Gods. Or maybe that's just too obscure a reference. 
Anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Bryden opens the show with a bit of stand-up and interaction with the audience, and as Chrissy has pointed out before, maybe stand-up isn't his strong suit. Don't get me wrong, he's a talented guy, and he demonstrates this when he brings out a guitar and he and Sir Tom Jones belt out some Elvis numbers together. Well, that's all right, Mama. Yeah. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right, Mama. Any way you do. Well, Mama, she don't told me. Papa don't told me to. Son, that girl you fooling with, she ain't no good for you. But that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, that's all right, that's all right now, Mama. Any way you do. Da 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 dee 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 dee. I need your loving. That's all right. That's all right now, Mama. Any way you do. And like Leno and Letterman, Bryden wants to introduce new stand-up acts and lets newcomers get some exposure on BBC One. I must confess that after a decade of Graham Norton shows, as well as many others, I'm suffering a bit of chat show fatigue. Like perhaps many of you, like Chrissy, you'll watch when they have a guest you are particularly interested in seeing, but in ordinary circumstances, I'm not going to go out of my way to watch it. I mean, are there any must-watch chat shows that you have now? Gosh, No. I mean, if I sit down and watch Graham Norton, I'm, I never feel I've wasted 40 minutes ever. And he's, he's one of the few chat show hosts I can probably say that about. I always think he's entertaining no matter who he has on. He has definitely got the right stuff. Joe Madison's War. The late Alan Platter wrote this nice ITV1 TV movie wartime reminiscence about a boring middle-aged shipbuilder in Liverpool named Joe, played by Kevin Waitley. It's 1940, and Joe has just seen his daughter married and his son off to fight the war when his wife leaves him unexpectedly. The government is looking to form a home guard to perform defensive functions so that younger soldiers can be used in combat. And you might recall a sitcom called Dad's Army about a wacky home guard unit during the war. Joe convinces his buddy Harry, played by Robson Green, to join up to the home guard, which is run by the local chemist, played by Derek Jacoby. Both Joe and Harry were veterans of the trenches of World War I, and the ghosts of that war haunt them even as they participate on the home front of this new war. Joe eventually gets a girlfriend, a widow, and with her help he develops confidence and becomes the unofficial spokesman for the men in his unit. Private Madison, tell me, what's all this nonsense about a strike? That's what I said, sir. A strike. You realize that word has no meaning in the army. Military rules apply. There is no such thing as a strike. Uh, it must be a mutiny, I suppose. Eh? Mutiny. If we're not allowed to strike, what else can it be? And is this to do with Private Crawford? Yes. Who struck his commanding officer? He doesn't deny it, but he had his reasons. And he's prepared to apologise if you'll reinstate him. And if we don't? It's everybody out here. Is this an example of the working-class solidarity that I read about from time to time? I think it must be, sir. Thank you, Private Madison. You can wait outside. What did Major Simpson say? He said Harry's a troublemaker, but it was obvious that I was the ringleader. 
So I'm suspended until further notice as an example of the others. Mind you, it was obviously the other fella pulling the strings. Newsreel footage takes us through the milestones in the war as we see Joe face responsibility and build a new life for himself. I caught the first episode of HBO's new series Boardwalk Empire over the weekend, and it had a character that had also just come back from the trenches in World War I. Both dramas show the impact that war had on soldiers who fought, and in Joe Madison's war, the irony that they supposedly fought the war to end all wars is not lost. Joe has to watch his son fly over 50 combat missions over Germany, when the odds were each time that one plane out of 25 wouldn't come back. With Britain commemorating the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, Joe Madison showed us one aspect of life on the home front. Yeah, I'll tell you what drove that World War I and World War II home to me as far as what it, it might have been like to be British was a Who Do You Think You Are episode with Julian Clary because his grandfather, who had died when his father was just quite young, so he had never, ever known his grandfather, had been a mechanic were for both wars and maintain the airplanes that were used. And he ended up committing himself to a mental institution between wars for shell shock, which had never been done before. And it was really after the war that they had to, before that, they were insane asylums and they were horrible, dreadful places full of lunatics. But they had so many men who were traumatized by the war, they really had to rethink mental health. And they didn't have psychoanalysis, so they would just put them somewhere pretty, get them doing a lot of occupational therapy, spending a lot of time outdoors in nice gardens and eating good food, and hoping that would, you know, buck these men up so they could go back to their lives. And there were just lots of photographs shown and and just pictures of the time of the men out in the yards playing sports or whatever. And the other book, um, there's a book I really think I've recommended before called The First Casualty by Ben Elton. It's one of his more recent books. It's it's four or five years old. But most of his, I think all of his books really have been either set in the future or contemporary times. And this one is set during World War One, And it's, it became my favorite of his dozen or so books, The First Casualty about a police officer and brilliant detective in London who decides to be a conscientious objector and is sent to prison for it, but then has an amazing adventure, which is the bulk of the book. But you really can actually almost smell and feel what it would have been like to be shoved on these trains and then it taking 24 hours or more to get to France because the tracks are so gutted. And then these men who've been standing all the way to France for 24 hours and having to get off and immediately march to the front and just and how they would do two weeks on and then pull off for a week of rest, which would be almost surreal because once you got away from the front lines, it was sort of, you were back in nice farmlands too. And these men would just savor every minute they were at rest and put on um, little entertainments for each other. And it's just a really good book. So if you are interested in World War One, hunt down Jillian Clary's episode of Who You Think You Are and The First Casualty by Ben Elton. And watch these uh, Joe Madison's War. That book sounds good. I would like to read that. I Excellent book. Really, I'll bring it to you. I it's, would read it's it because I enjoyed Ben Elton's book, and that sounds like a really interesting topic. Mm-hmm. News. BBC One is going to devote an entire evening to going out live from Television Center in 2013. And that will mark 
the last year broadcast will be made at the Landmark Building in West London and will also serve as the 60th anniversary of the live broadcast of Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953, as you were asking about earlier. Yeah. It seems kind of far off to be planning three years in advance, but I guess the BBC wanted a news-making announcement. And coincidentally, 2013 will be the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. Maybe they can combine all the events and maybe do a live episode of Doctor Who from Television Center, which was its home back in the 70s and 80s. Starring Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> well, that won't happen. No. Nope. Yeah, it's a shame they're going to get rid of Television Center. Have you been there? Yes, I broke in one night. I've talked about that before. Oh, see, I haven't. I have not been to BBC Television Center. The tapings I've been to for shows were always at the uh, London TV Studios, which is just a stone's throw from Waterloo Station. On the South really, Bank. Yeah, really yeah. easy to get to, and it's just an. It looks like a regular office building when you go in, and both times just because of the oddity that I was an American who had gotten tickets a different way than usual, rather than getting physical tickets, we I was put on a list and myself and my guest would get to go up and hang out in the bar with all the people who worked there before the show, which was kind of fun. Yeah, I went to a taping of Whose Line Is Anyway in 1993. And again, because we were Americans, we were VIP. So yeah. we didn't have to wait out in the cold. The one night it snowed while I lived in England. Wow. And uh, we got to be inside. Oh, I would have liked to have seen that, though. I mean, snow's pretty. It's it wasn't an that annoyance, much. but it's pretty. It was kind of like a yeah. Seattle snow where, oh, oh, look, it's snowing. But it wasn't like there was three feet in the ground. It was just, you know, look, it's snowing out there. Yeah, Television Center is an interesting place. You've seen it in like Monty Python episodes and stuff, and they're not going to tear it down. It's a listed building, well, but the BBC is going to vacate it. JT went on a tour of it, and she was that was the funniest, silliest thing she could have done because she works for NBC, so she's used to every nook and cranny and getting to watch Saturday Night Live rehearsals all week on closed-circuit TV during her breaks, and so to get in this very strict little get in to her where she she felt like she didn't see anything she thought it was really a waste of time but i don't know if the average joe would want to do the tour or not 30 rock is a much different building than television center yeah i mean built in different eras very different types of buildings well she felt like she didn't see anything of any interest to her so yeah i guess you're saying oh look here's television being made that would be like a baker watching oh here's some bread rising but it's an interesting building do you remember the very early Alexi Sale sketch where Angus Deaton, who was a regular in those days, was leading a tour group through BBC Television Center? No. It's pretty hysterical. I'd better post it and send you the link because they're going, why, look, it's Tom Baker. And it's like a scarecrow, with, you know, a broom that they've put a hat and a scarf on. And it's a Dalek and it's a garbage can, you know, and they're oh, just making... Yeah, it's quite the funny. cheap BBC I'll tour. Have to, I'll have to send that to you, and we'll post it. Tom Hollander's recent BBC Two sitcom Rev about an Anglican priest working in the inner city has been commissioned for a second season. The charming comedy with Hollander as the mild-mannered but vexed Reverend Adam Smallbone, who patiently deals with various burdens placed on him, was abetted by Olivia Coleman as his wife, and reportedly even the Archbishop of Canterbury was a fan. And like most things these days, there's talk on an American <laughs> remake. The of second season, there is. Yes. The second season is due next autumn on BBC Two. Who would the American counterpart of Olivia and Coleman be? I'm thinking, you know, who kind of age and just the wryness of the smile and the intelligence would be more in a tyranny. I know she's busy, but that's who I would kind of 
equate them to. Sure. What's on TV for the week of September 22nd to the 28th? Wednesday, Bang Goes the Theory continues on BBC One, followed by the school drama Waterloo Road. ITV One presents the unforgettable Terry Scott, a profile of the comedy star of many of the carry-on films, and Terry and June. It's followed by Midsummer Murders, which has John Nettles investigating The Silent Land. Thursday, River Cottage Every Day with Hugh Friendly Whittingstall begins on Channel 4. Hugh has caught the prevailing mood of austerity with a series aimed at making the best of cheap cuts of meat, allowing us to make delicious, simple, home-cooked food every day from organic and free-range produce. He, he generally does have the spirit of austerity. He raises his own meat, and he says, as he says, you use everything but the oink when you butcher a pig. You owe it to the animal. You're going to catch that series? Oh, yeah. I oh. watch them all. I love Hugh. In fact, I just ordered a cookbook. There were several of his first cookbook on eBay selling for almost nothing. So I ordered one for me and one for my hairdresser because I've got her onto him now. Channel 4 concludes Alan Davis's Teenage Revolution. Law and Order UK continues on ITV1. The topical panel show Mock the Week continues back on BBC One. Celebrity Juice continues on ITV2. Simon Bird's The King is Dead continues on BBC Three. Friday, it's QI on BBC One with guest panelists Sue Perkins, Bill Bailey, and Giles Brandreth. You know, Giles was on an early episode, which remains one of my favorite ever. And so I'm looking forward to him back there. And I always like Sue. But they've got some awfully good guests coming this this year. I haven't seen who's coming up, but don't spoil me. Okay. Do you see the first episode? Not yet. I will. I'll um, do. My comment is that Stephen Fry borrowed his hair from Michael Parkinson. <laughs> I swear, it's Michael Parkinson's hair circa 1980. And on Friday, QI is followed by the police comedy drama New Tricks. ITV1 continues Paulo Grady Live. The Rob Brydon Show on BBC2 has guest James Corden. It was only a oh, matter yeah. of time. Mark Ronson and Carly Smallman. Little cruise of the gods Reunion. link there. That's right. Maybe James it, Corden. all the people who appear in the Rob Brydon <laughs> show were in Cruise of the Gods. I mean, we know it's only a matter of time before Coogan shows up. Yep. Eight out of ten cats continues on Channel Four, followed by the repeat of this week's The Inbetweeners. Saturday afternoon, Shelf Stackers continues on BBC Two. The chatty animals of Walk on the Wild Side continue on BBC One. I must confess, the eight-year-old boy me found the Head farting dolphins, quite amusing. Nope. But, you know, then they show it again. Like, okay, it was funny once, but not the second time. Season three of Merlin continues on BBC One. Michael McIntyre's Comedy Roadshow is on BBC One. Sunday, Lee Ingleby and Martin Shaw investigate another crime in 1960s rural England on BBC One's Inspector George Gently. We did a feature on Lee Ingleby way back in show three. Yeah. He's got a gray beard now. Does he? Yeah. It's been a long year. ITV1's Sunday night drama is Downton Abbey. Maggie Smith and Hugh Bonneville lead the all-star cast in this drama written by Jillian Fellows about the lives of the Crawley family and the servants who work for them in an Edwardian country house. We predict this will turn up on Masterpiece Theater at some point. 
Yes, and it starts off just before the First World War, so we'll probably get a little bit of uh, war drama there as well. Mm. Monday, the highly rated Spooks continues its ninth season with plot twists aplenty. DCI Banks Aftermath is on ITV1, a two-part mystery drama starring Stephen Tompkinson. The second season of Genius with Dave Gorman is on BBC2. The public is invited to present their own wacky inventions, and a celebrity guest votes on whether they are indeed genius or not. It's like a comedy version of Dragon's Den, only deliberately funny. Did you see the first season of that? No. Oh, Catherine Tate was on one. It was it was pretty funny. Good. The Inbetweeners continues E4. Him and Her with Russell Tovey continues on BBC3. School of Comedy continues on E4. Ask Rod Gilbert begins on BBC One with the Welsh comedian using archive footage, studio demonstrations, and live link-ups from around the world to answer the public's burning questions. Tuesday, Whites begins on BBC Two, a new sitcom with Alan Davis as a less-than-sizzling head chef, Roland White, whose early ambition to win a coveted Michelin star has been thwarted by a lack of zest, and his long-suffering second-in-command, Bib. Darren Boyd, Catherine Parkinson, and Stephen Wright also co-star. We did a feature on Alan Davis in show 28. And on Tuesday, it's followed by the third season of Harry and Paul, the sketch comedy series written and performed by Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse. We did a feature on Harry Enfield in show 11. Ideal with Johnny Vegas continues on BBC Three. This is England concludes on Channel 4. In the United States, on BBC America, there's the big premiere, and it's the 15th season of Top Gear on Monday night. We'll have a feature about Top Gear in a few minutes. On Adult Swim on Friday night has the UK version of Ricky Gervais' The Office. On PBS, Masterpiece Mystery finishes its run of Lewis. DVD releases, Being Human Season 2. If you somehow missed the run on BBC America or on iTunes, here's your chance to catch the Bristol-based Supernatural series before the third season begins. And it's also available on Blu-ray. Mr. Palfrey of Westminster, the complete series. It was a spy series from 1984 starring Alec McGowan. Considering it's over 25 years old, probably a lot more drama and espionage than, say, an episode of Spooks. Probably a lot less action, to be sure. Okay. Taggart Set 3 features episodes from the 2005 season of the long-running Scottish detective series whose title character has long since passed away. Subtitles are included. The Scottish accent's pretty thick sometimes. You know, I've always been sort of smug. My my mom still can't understand a lot of accents when she watches certain shows. I've never had problems with any except the occasional Scottish accent. When I went to see Kevin Spacey and The Iceman Cometh at the Old Vic, part of the problem was The Old Vic is the only theater left where they don't amplify the actors. But there was a a Scottish character in there, and he was making it as thick as he possibly could just to tickle the audience. And everyone around me was laughing merrily. I couldn't understand a word. It was very funny. Yes, I can recall trying to get instructions in the Glasgow train station from somebody, and I couldn't quite understand what they were saying. Yep. Well, I'm past that now, except at the Old Vic when they're being purposefully Scottish. Mm. 
Our feature this week is on Top Gear. The 15th season of Top Gear comes to BBC America on Monday after a run this summer on BBC Two. Jeremy Clarkson, James May, and Richard Hammond return with a brand new reasonably priced car, an attempt to drive up an active volcano in Iceland, and learn all about the famous three-wheeled Reliant Robin that was popular in the North in the 1980s. Let's hear from a big fan of the series, Doris. Welcome to the podcast, Doris. Well, thank you. Hi. Hi. So what is it about Top Gear that makes you such a fan? Just totally outrageous, totally off the wall, and the guys who host the show just kind of make the whole experience for me. I mean, they're, they're, it's like watching high school kids playing in the playground and, and trying to get away with all the naughty stuff. And they manage to get away with it. Hard to imagine the stunts that they actually come up with and that the, the TV, BBC, will let them do. It's not so much the BBC, it's health and safety. Well, the health and safety too, but, you know, here in the United States, everybody, they'd be to worrying about too much of the insurance and, you know, making sure that everything is PC and that nobody gets hurt. So I, I, you'd never see that show here. Well, actually, you're wrong about that, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Well, e even if they do have it here, it's, it's probably not going to be quite the same. No. Jeremy is amazing as a host because every once in a while, all I want to do is walk up and give him a good slap. On the other hand, I just can't believe the stuff that he actually says when he does his car reviews. First time I saw the show was back in the old incarnation in 98, and he was on it then. Even at that point, he'd become so iconic that there were many imitations of him on other TV shows. And I couldn't believe how they could just give it both barrels to some review of a product because... In the commercial media environment that we live in the United States here, you can't go on and just say, this thing sucks. It's terrible. Yeah. Because you have to worry about advertisers and all that. And the BBC doesn't have that problem. And I was like, wow, yeah. If you could do a car show and not have to worry about annoying anybody, you could say anything. Yeah. Like I said, it's just amazing. All three of the hosts, they are totally brutally honest when they do their car reviews. And they do not pussyfoot around. They say what they mean. They're not looking out like here. They would probably be very careful because you have the big three of automakers and you don't really want to come out and say something is really bad. They will dance around it. They will just tell you they hate a car, that it's totally awful, and they'll go with it. And because they are, most of the time they're right because they do know their cars, that the automakers do listen to them. But they had a Koenigsegg, which is one of the most expensive custom cars ever made, which they broke on the first time they took it out. They destroyed like a half million, three-quarter million dollar car, but they realized there was a big design flaw, and the company actually fixed the flaw, brought the car back for them to test drive again. That's a lot of influence to have over a car maker. It doesn't hurt when you also have huge audiences either. Yeah. Well, these people give them a half million dollar car to drive, and, you know, put them through their paces and just let them go with it, for better or worse. That is what's most interesting to watch to me sometimes, is those are cars I will never get to drive. But just vicariously watching is just fun. Are you a car person? Sometimes. I mean, I like cars. I like driving sometimes. I have the secret desire to, first of all, be the star in the reasonably priced car. That is always my fantasy. Well, you have to become a star, that's all. Yeah, well, i got to work on that part. Okay. Watching cars that you just don't see on the road, 
and that you know you probably will never drive, but seeing people actually drive them, share the experience, you can almost feel the energy that comes from driving some of those wild cars. Do you have a desire to go fast? Yes. I would really like to go fast. I would love to be able to take a car out on a track sometime and just give it a go. When's the first time you watched Top Gear? Probably two or three years ago. I think the first thing I saw was the Conkers with the caravans. I was like, I have to see what's going on because I can't believe what I'm seeing. They are playing Conkers with caravans and enjoying and destroying them as a little competitive game. And then I kind of got hooked. It's like, how, how do you expect them to top it? They, they would just continually top themselves. Who's your favorite presenter? Is it Jeremy, James, or Richard? You know, it's, it's funny because each of them has a different personality. Jeremy is just so outrageous. You either love him or hate him. Sometimes I just can't stand what he's doing, but other times he's just so entertaining. I can't believe that he's like saying and doing what he's doing. Richard is just cute. And probably James May is the one I'd want to go have a beer with. So is Jeremy Clarkson just putting out an act, or does he really believe everything he says? I think he believes everything he says. I mean, he's probably a little bit more, you know, more outrageous than he would be to everybody else normally. But I think he, he pretty much is very strong in his opinions. I mean, I've read his political ideas, and he, he really is very adamant about certain things. And he's not afraid to express them. I find it interesting that the one thing he doesn't do, which would be kind of the cliche man's man thing, is he hates football. Yeah, he, he hates football, but he's also, let's have a drink and drive cars. So well, kind of makes up for it. And I don't know if he's a real cricket fan either. Well, not everybody in England watches cricket, but almost everybody loves football. So mm-hmm. he definitely yep. is the minority when he says it's a stupid game and I hate watching it. Yeah, well, that's Jeremy. Do you think the series is a documentary or is it a comedy show? It is a documentary in that what you see is what's happening, but it's almost taking it to the limit of how far will they actually go. One of the uh, episodes that almost had me on the floor in apoplexy was uh, an episode where they went to New Orleans and bought cars to drive across the South and drove through, you know, they were driving along and then they decided they were going to paint each other's cars and they, you know, painted um, rather... Inflammatory. Inflammatory, provoking items on the car. And then the, uh, they, the place where they stopped for gas, the lady sent her, her sons and their friends out after them to drive them out of town. It's like, mm-hmm. Yeah, you probably won't see that on NBC. How much of it is real and how much is it staged? Uh, we just watched a clip from the upcoming season opener there with Jeremy running around his Reliant Robin there. And very conveniently... Rolling it where there was no other cars, no pedestrians, and some minor celebrity handy yeah. to help roll it back over yeah. again. I mean, and that, yeah, I, that's pretty much staged. But, I mean, the rollover still happened, and he continually rolled over that car. That's still, I mean, whether it's staged or not, I, I don't think I'd go out and try to roll a car six or seven times in a row just for fun. <laughs> I mean, he, they, they still set it up, but he still did take the hits. I mean, yeah, that, that takes a lot of guts to kind of go out and do that, you know, and be totally ridiculous. What have, are some of your favorite challenges they've done? I liked the, which is faster, a plane or a car into Switzerland, which, of course, Jeremy won by 
mere feet. They did a couple of challenges through Iceland. The African driving across the most barren place in Africa, that was quite a challenge. And then, you know, the Beetle One of the the go-to car for everyone. And also uh, the their trip to South America where they bought cars sight unseen and had to drive from the jungle to the coast. And I think the top one has to be driving to the North Pole. I mean, that was actually a legitimate record that they did in, in driving across probably the most inhospitable place to drive in the world. There's a callback to that because the car that they use is a museum, but the camera car, which was the exact same car, mm-hmm. that modified Toyota, James uses it to go to an active volcano in the season opener. Probably one of the first things that I saw was they bought a Toyota truck and tried to destroy it. And they blew it up in a building. Uh, they set fire to it. They sent it out in the tide and have the tide come and wash over the truck. And, and every time they could get it back running again. And for like one season, that was actually in the studio every day. It was the truck that just would not die. What about the famous rocket Reliant Robin? That was very amusing. I mean, and they almost succeeded. They, they took that Reliant and made it into a space shuttle, hoping to get the Reliant to come flying back to Earth. And due to a technical difficulty of one of the restraining bolts not coming off, the whole thing did come and crash and burn into a large pit on the Army range, but it was fun to watch. We'll have a link to a YouTube clip of that on our show notes. Yeah, the takeoff was pretty amazing. I, mean, I was really amazed. At, wow, that's pretty solid-looking rocket going up there, and it went straight up. Yep. I mean, they had the experts come and help them build it. Well, even the quote, unquote, people. experts yep. with real rockets, sometimes they go kaboom on the launch pad. Yep. That was a very clean liftoff. Yep. They, they, like I said, they were very close to accomplishing what they set out to do. All right, up until that very moment when it came crashing back. Yes. How would you pitch the show to get somebody to watch it who might think it's just a boring automotive program? I would say that you, you it is so outrageous. The car reviews, you can take them or leave them. But when you see what some of the other things I get up to, you have to see it because it, you almost can't explain it. Because... No matter what you try to say, it's going to kind of exceed what you expect. So, I mean, it is just so much fun. It's You almost don't want it to stop. Part of the charm of the whole Britishness of it, they just don't make any concessions to the international audiences at all. No, and what, what really surprises me are the people who, the well-known people who they do get to come on. Well, Tom Cruise famously is going to be on this season. Yeah, Cameron Diaz. They've had all these movie stars that came in. You know, Helen Mirren came in, Michael Gambon. But they're British. They would watch the show. They, they know what the oh, show yeah, is. Oh, yeah, but I mean, those are stars of really well-known Michael caliber. Gambon's going to be in Doctor Who this year, so, yep. you know. <laughs> well, I mean, but, you know, here, for some like that, like, Big Brother-type thing shows here, you don't usually see the Tom Cruises come out and do that kind of shows. I think it's also because of the way actors treat acting in the UK, where, you know, you don't have that huge movie stars and everybody else thing as much as you do here that they're willing to go on and, and kind of make, not make a fool of themselves, but to do something risky and be caught in just doing something normal every day. Well, it is only driving a car. Yeah. And as you say, a lot of them like to go really fast. Under stress, but yeah. The BBC sells the format to several countries to make their own domestic version. There's one in Australia, for example. 
And it appears there'll be an American one on the History Channel with Adam Ferreira and mostly unknown speed commentator Rutledge Wood. Does it have a chance in hell of catching on? Uh, Channel your inner Clarkson here. Yeah. I mean, I would like to think it will. The History Channel itself is not one of the top channels people go to for automotive stuff. I would think it would be more on a channel like Speed. Yes, it does seem to be a bit odd. Yeah. Not knowing who these people are and not seeing an episode, it'll probably be interesting, but it's not going to be the same as the British Top Gear because part of what makes British Top Gear are the people who are the hosts. That chemistry that makes it. And so unless we come up with something similar to that, it's going to be an interesting show, but it's not going to be the same as the UK Top Gear. Plus, as you say, they're probably, for health and safety reasons, are not going to be able to do the death-defying stunts that they do on that show. Yeah, it, that too. When we did Junkyard Wars, those kind of things here, they spent a lot more time on talking about things than actually doing things. So when it came over here, it wasn't quite as spontaneous as it had been on the UK version. When it's overproduced like that, it's not quite as enjoyable as just like when you see the Top Gear guys screw up or crash or whatever. It's not polished. It's not, let's hide that part. They just show everything. Well, it's a very slickly done show. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I, I don't think it's low budget by any means. No. But, but yes, part of the gags is seeing things go wrong. I really enjoy watching Top Gear. I actually got my husband into watching it. Because, like I told him, you have to see this. You, you won't believe it, but you have to see it. And now we're both hooked on it. I mean, it's like become appointment TV to see every week. And, you know, I hope it continues on and, and being as interesting and fun as it is. If not the, it's one of the BBC's biggest money makers internationally because they've got magazines and DVDs and spinoffs. Mm-hmm. And one thing these days the BBC is going to do is get rid of a money maker. So I think yeah. it's a pretty safe bet there's going to be mm-hmm. lots more Top Gear. And, you know, they're, as long as people are still interested, it's going to keep pushing the limit to see what they can come up with. So I will still continue to watch. Like I said, hopefully I'll become a star so that I can be that, drive that reasonably priced car. Maybe this is your first step. This being is in my this first podcast. step. Yes, indeed. Okay. You know, everybody has to have a goal. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot. Okie doke. So, Top Gear originally began on the BBC in 1977 as a straightforward program about automobiles, and its early presenters included Noel Edmonds. Jeremy Clarkson, a writer for Performance Car Magazine, joined the series in 1988. I caught up with the series during a trip to England in 1998, and it had me laughing out loud at several points. Even back then, Clarkson was such an iconic and easily imitated presenter that many parodies of him and the series have popped up. Chrissy has a clip on her YouTube page of Milton Jones from 1997's Planet Mirth in one such parody. The trouble with parodying Jeremy Clarkson, like John Colshaw does on Dead Ringers, is that having him utter complete nonsense isn't really that much more absurd than the things that real Clarkson says. The BBC, as it often curiously does, cancelled Top Gear in 2001, despite it being BBC Two's most watched show. There had been a revolving door of presenters, even Clarkson had left the series in 2000, and it was felt the format needed to be refreshed. Many of the production team moved to Channel 5 to make Fifth Gear, so the BBC decided to relaunch its Top Gear in 2002 as a more studio-based format rather than a magazine format. Jeremy Clarkson was joined by Richard Hammond and Jason Daw for this new hour-long version. 
James May replaced James Daw after the first season, and the rest is history. BBC America, which is where Doris discovered it, has been running it for several years and kicks off the 15th season on Monday night. Some of the stars you'll see this season in the new reasonably priced car are Rupert Grint from Harry Potter, Andy Garcia, and Jeff Goldblum. By the way, if you watch carefully at the end of the first episode, there's a blooper on the copyright date. It says MMXX, which would make it 2020 instead of 2010. A case of an extra X there. Though perhaps the BBC has fixed it since the original transmission. As far as I'm aware, before last week, Chrissy had never seen Top Gear. Is that right? That's true. So I gave her an assignment to watch the 2007 Top Gear in America special, which saw the boys driving around the South in $1,000 cars. What did you think? I liked it. I, it went pretty quickly. It was a lot to keep me entertained. I liked the challenges. I thought it was very, I thought they thought of really funny things to say, almost like they had a comedy writer there, but it did seem to be improvised. They were just naturally funny fellows. And I'd watch more, perhaps. Hmm. But it was good. Do you remember what was Clarkson said that was the one contribution that American had to civilization? It was the turning right on red lights. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. So love it or hate it, Top Gear is here to stay, with no shortage of celebrities willing to appear on it, and an American version on the horizon. Yeah, and because they have replaced the reasonably priced car, they'll have some repeat visitors now, because they wouldn't let a celebrity do the old challenge more than once, but so... um... That's true. And in fact, in the first episode, they, a couple of people come back mm-hmm. because they want to be the first to try a new car, including uh, Bill Bailey and Johnny Vaughn. It seems to be a, a Kia that doesn't have an American counterpart. I was reading about it. They, it's in a European-only Kia slash Hyundai release. Looks nice. I try a Hyundai. No. <laughs> oh. I like Hyundais. There you go. You have a reasonably priced car. Yeah. So next week, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. Well, we have a new quiz from Michael. Hi, Chrissy and Ryan. Following on from the last quiz, this police or police procedural quiz is a bit more modern and includes shows from the 2000s. There are five clips and I'm after the name of the show. After each clip, there'll be a few seconds of the theme music, then on to the answer. Here's the first clip. I think you're wrong. This doesn't bear the hallmarks of a football-related attack. United are playing City on Saturday. Some poor sod always gets a good kick in. But that's just it, he didn't. If this was about football, he would have had serious injuries. He's dead. That's quite serious. (laughs) Take a look at the lawman beating up the wrong guy. Is that where the lyrics go? Oh, man. Yep. Wonder if I ever know. Yes, that does appear to be Life on Mars. Mm This BBC show only lasted from 2006 to 2007 and starred John Sim and Philip Glenister as Sam Tyler and Gene Hunt. Life on Mars starts in modern times and after being hit by a car, Sam Tyler awakes in 1973 and has to adjust to the ways of the time. Did he die? Is he mad? Is he in a coma? You'll have to watch it to find out. Clip 2. Get a hold of Felix Norman for me. Say I want to view the victim tonight. 
So I need a squad car and a driver, and I want access to all items taken from the victim's bedsitter, and I want to re-interview the landlady. And also, get the Dubs guys to send me over a set of prints from the victim, and also a set of prints from this file, which don't seem to be there, with any discrepancies marked. Uh, we got a set of prints? No. I want two sets. One from the victim, and one from Della Mornay's original vice file. Got that? I'll see you in the item checkout room. Right. Prime suspect. Yeah, mm. I'm thinking prime suspect. Prime Suspect was first shown on ITV in 1991 and the seventh and final series in 2006. Starring Helen Mirren as a chain-smoking DCI Jane Tennyson trying to succeed as head of a murder team in a police service dominated by sexism. Clip three. Tissues look discoloured. They are. I don't get it. That means it can't be a result of the crash. Exactly. I thought the body must still be in the wreckage somewhere. Nope. It's a rogue arm. It doesn't belong to anybody. So I'm going to radiograph it and keep it intact and hopefully we'll find a match. Can you ring round mortuaries, hospitals, find out if they've had anyone in with a missing arm? Hmm. And I don't know. Might have been John Nettles there. It might be Midsummer Murders. First broadcast in 1996, Silent Witness focuses on a team of forensic experts investigating various crimes. Amanda Burton was the original lead and played Dr. then Professor Sam Ryan. She was replaced in 2004 by William Gaminara playing Leo Dalton. The series was created by a former murder squad detective and based on the real-life forensic pathologist Professor Helen Whitwell. Yeah, I've only seen it once, and Dana Delaney's in a series that sounds very similar to that this year, but I don't know if it's officially based on it or just about a female coroner. Clip four. Environments, the body will bloat and decompose quite quickly. Yeah, but this guy's had six years in the desert to dry out, isn't he? Exactly. It will encourage desiccation. Some of the soft tissue will be preserved. It's also frozen in the aeroplane for quite some time. Is this going to smell? No, no. It's like the uh, mummies in the tombs in Egypt. Ready? Yep. Are you going to be able to get any DNA from this mummy? I can try. Well, the very best of luck. Mature male. Thanks, Felix. Hands have been removed at the wrist. He needs a name. Well, he's not going to answer to whatever you call him, is he? Well, it would give him a bit more dignity, wouldn't it, to have a name? Well, like Crispy Duck or Icebox, Ice Cube. You always go too far. Mr. Freeze. Oh, and a cause of death, Felix, as soon as you can, please. I don't have any Those idea. Bone kickers? That's what? All, all... That's not really a, a copy. Yeah. No, it's, no. It's, the mummies are throwing me off. This BBC show, Waking the Dead, gets its name from being a cold case unit. They usually investigate old murder cases that were never solved using new evidence and modern techniques. The pilot was shown in 2000 and has been on each year since, except 2010. A new series has been commissioned for 2011. Another series I've never seen. Yeah, I've seen one episode. And Sue Johnston was in it and blew me away because I only knew her from the royal family. Ah. And so watching her as this police detective was just, (laughs) whoa. Clip five. Note the common factor. (coughs) 
Every one of these burglaries happened when the occupiers were on holiday. Suggesting what to the trained mind? Sing? Uh, close observation of the premises, sir. Or inside information. Welcome back, Sunshine. I hear you've been withholding something vital. What's that, sir? When our burglar visited Mrs. Cottingley's, he left behind some crucial evidence, didn't he? He micturated in a kitchen utensil. He did what? He urinated in the lady's kettle, sir. <laughs> Must be a damn good shot. Well, I don't think he did it to the spout, sir. <laughs> I've sent the liquid for analysis. Good. Because now we know exactly who we're looking for. The Weatherton Micturator. <laughs> well, I think he's throwing us a bone because of last week's show. Yeah, that was Warren Clark, and so it must be Deal and Pasco. That should have been easy if you listened to last week's show. It was D.L. and Pascoe from the BBC, starring Warren Clark as Andy D.L., the oafish boss of Peter Pascoe, played by Colin Buchanan. I'm not sure if it's actually been cancelled, but the last new episodes were shown in 2007. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. All the best, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Well, three out of five, not too bad. See what he gets to us next time. Well, we'd like you to go visit our website. It's at www.britishtvpodcast.com and there you can find links to headlines, show notes, what's on TV this week, and our previous 50 episodes. If you'd like to send us some feedback, it's at feedback at britishtvpodcast.com. And we now have a Twitter feed. Oh, hey. Oh, my God, I'm on Twitter. You can find that at Brit. TV podcast. That's B R I T T V P O D C A S T. Why don't you follow me? I talk about the various shows that I'm watching and when we release new episodes and all sorts of neat little tidbits to do with British TV. And I only need two million more followers, and I'll have as many as Kevin Smith. Yay. So get going if you are doing those social networky kind of things. And we also have a Facebook page too. So Alan Davis is a new show. Yeah. Be interesting seeing... He's not done a traditional sitcom, has he? Well, there was the many splintered thing, but that was pretty dismal. That was a long time ago, too. Is that to have a laugh track? I can't remember. It felt like it should have. I guess it wasn't live, though. No, it was a single camera. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that should be uh, interesting. I know that he had written one for himself, and that's how he got seen, and somebody thought of him when it came time to cast Jonathan Creek. But that would be, you know, 15 years ago that he would have written this. Did he write, is he writing this or is it? I didn't him? see a mention of yeah. him. I mean, I think obviously it has to try to avoid comparisons to the Lenny Henry show, Chef. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.